welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. All right. Good morning, everyone. I met at the first service. At the first service, met some folks from Texas, and uh, they took credit for the weather. Good old Texans. They're like, yeah, we came and look at it. So I'm like, yeah, thank you, Texans. So any Texans in the house, thank you for the weather. Beautiful, beautiful day. It's a new year. I got a new haircut. We're doing a new series. I just time it all together. So I would invite you to listen along as we dig into the text today. We are going to be studying the book of Ephesians for the next uh, few months. And so if you're not familiar with it, what a great time to get into that book. I want to give you a big picture of the Bible in general. First of all, keep in mind that the Bible itself is a collection of 66 books by perhaps written by over three dozen authors over a span of maybe 2,000 years. Very diverse book, but it has one grand story about God. And so what we see, we see the story is about God, it's about God's people, and it's about how God's people can live into God's story. So that's why this series is called The Story of God, as we look at the book of Ephesians. And so what we want to see is, as we look at the New Testament scriptures, where we find the book of Ephesians, there's 27 books in the New Testament, and what we have are 13 letters, 13 documents that are attributed to the Apostle Paul. Out of 27, this is nearly 50%, quite prolific, the Apostle Paul is. When we think of the New Testament, when we think of Christianity, the Apostle Paul is a significant figure. Now, there are four particular letters that we call the prison letters. It's Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, and Ephesians. Those are four special ones. We're going to look at one today, and over the next several weeks, the letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, some of you know I finished my dissertation this last September um, after 13 years of hard work and primarily procrastination, okay? As a six-year program, I turned into 13 because I'm really good at math, so I doubled it. And the reality is this. I had to ask some people because I was struggling to get it done. I said, what? Some people who finished their doctorates, what did you do? They said, Tim, you need to get away. You got to have uninterrupted time to focus and to write. And so that's how I got it done. It happened. It worked. And so what I did is I did the math. And you can see that when you look at Paul, what he wrote, he's credited with writing 43,293 words from those 13 documents. And by comparison, my measly dissertation only had 30,257 words. And that includes footnotes and the appendices. So Paul has a way, way, way bigger, bigger, massive uh, literary work compared to Pastor Tim. Now, the thing is, when I finally got that time to focus, I got it done. Now, here's the thing. I think Paul, as he's in prison, I think maybe in Rome, Paul actually had extended time over these, we think, maybe two years to write some of these letters. He he had time, actually, you can imagine, away from the day-to-day responsibilities of caring and discipling and teaching these young believers and this burgeoning, growing church body, not only in Ephesus, but Asia Minor and throughout the world. He's thrown in prison. He actually has time. And he writes. And he creates this amazing letter that we're going to get to dig into over the next few weeks. 
this letter to the Christians in Ephesus that blessed them, blessed the other churches in the region, and is now blessing us today 2,000 years later. And so my prayer is that the Spirit might bless us in a way as we look at this scripture. So would you pray with me? Lord, bless us. Help us to get a clear picture of you. Help us to see your purposes. Help us to see our little role in your grand plan. Help us to step into your story, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now, what I want to do today is give it broad introduction. And so I'm going to first talk about the context for the letter to the Ephesians. I'm going to look at some overarching themes, um, just take a look at a few of them. We're going to look thirdly at Ephesians 2 for a little bit to kind of see the Jewish and Gentile context. I'll explain that in a little bit. And then lastly, a prayer of Paul that's going to encourage us to see with new eyes. And I'll close with a little bit of application. So first of all, let me tell you a little bit about the city of Ephesus. Very quickly, a large, prosperous city in the Roman Empire. Perhaps there's a quarter million people or more the time that Paul is writing this letter. It's near modern-day Turkey. Now, the Greek and Roman gods were very prevalent in the city of Ephesus. In fact, it's temple worship of the god Artemis. It was central to its economy and to its life. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, a good thing for you to read sometime this week, you're going to learn that Paul spent over two years in the city of Ephesus. The first few months, he spent in the Jewish synagogues, because he himself was a good Jewish Pharisee, now a follower of Christ. And then after he got kicked out of there, they got mad at him, he spent over two years in the place called the Hall of Tyranneth. And I believe there he ministered to Jews and to Gentiles as he taught there every day. Gentiles are just simply non-Jews, like you and me. Most of us are are non-Jews or Gentiles. Now, we know in his time ministering there that the whole gospel reached the entire region through this faithful ministry in this hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus. And so what we see is that Ephesus becomes a significant strategic ministry center for the apostle Paul. Now, there's a scholar named N.T. Wright, and he notes this, Paul spent a day or two in each of the Galatian churches. He stayed a few days in Philippi, a few weeks in Thessalonica, a day or two in Berea, a few days in Athens. Well, then he spent 18 months in Corinth. And then now, as a kind of a climax to his work, he was in one of the major centers of the Mediterranean world, Ephesus itself, a great city at the hub of the trade routes of the world, full of culture and money and temples and politics and soldiers and merchants and slaves. And Paul is establishing mature Christians in Ephesus, I believe, because he knows the city is so strategic to reach the Roman Empire and the entire world for Christ. Paul makes a special emphasis on this city of Ephesus. Now, we suspect that Paul had an incredible impact, this incredible fruitful ministry from what we read about his life and this time in Ephesus, his two plus years there. But we also know that his time in Ephesus was filled with pain. That's important to remember. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, Paul references some very, very, very painful times while ministering in this city. 
And in years later after he left Ephesus, what we believe is that Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians while under house arrest somewhere around 62 AD, is our guess, while arrested in Rome. Ephesians 3.1, Paul mentions being um, in prison while he's writing this letter. Now, I believe, again, his imprisonment allowed him to have visitors who actually probably helped him uh, craft and edit and even distribute this letter, as we see it, not in a book, but probably in some kind of scroll, that got sent first to a small church in Ephesus and then got distributed throughout the region to other Christians who were likely Gentiles. Now, when we see this happen, we have to keep in mind God had a plan. God had a plan. And what he does through the Apostle Paul is he sets out some overarching themes that Paul is going to write down in this letter to Ephesians. So let me give you this basic overview. If you're looking at the book of Ephesians this week, this letter, it divides evenly into two halves. Pretty simple. Chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul explores and, and studies this idea of this grand story of God who sent his son Jesus to usher in a spirit-empowered, multi-ethnic community of followers that got to take part in God's sovereign plan. That's the first half of Ephesians. The second half of the letter, Paul makes this logical leap that God's people should be living into the reality of this story. That this story affects every aspect of our lives. It affects you individually. It affects your family. It affects your relationships. It affects your work relationships, the economy. That if you're a follower of Jesus, it's not just about getting saved and going to heaven. It affects every aspect of your life, your thought life, your relationship life. And so to put it very simply, Paul's letter to the Ephesians could be divided like this. Chapters 1 through 3 focus on orthodoxy or right thinking. And then chapters 4 through 6, the second half, focus on orthopraxy or right living. So oversimplification, but I just want to give you a big picture view. And so what Paul hopes is that this exalted vision of God and his plan to unify Jewish and Gentile believers, Jews and non-Jews, who follow, who follow Jesus, and they might be experiencing divisions and divisiveness. He's saying you need a new vision, a vision of togetherness in Christ. And I always joke whenever I talk about this, isn't it great that 2,000 years later, we're not dealing with divisions and divisiveness in the church? My goodness, this letter is written to every Christian today. Holy Spirit, teach us, lead us. Now, our friend Reed Jolly, who's a guest preacher that we'll see in the weeks to come, he lists four theological themes that arise throughout this letter. So I'm going to mention very quickly. The first one is the sovereignty of God. How God is the object of all praise and adoration. You can see that clearly in Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 2, and throughout the whole text. Secondly, the doctrine of reconciliation by Christ on the cross. So first, sinful men and women are reconciled to God, and then God sends us out to be reconciled to one another. The vertical relationship with God always results in the horizontal relationship with others. Reconciled with God, reconciled with others. 
Thirdly, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that a little bit today as we look at Ephesians 2. But we see throughout the book of Ephesians, the Holy Spirit takes a prominent place within Paul's writing and thinking. And especially for a lot of us churches that maybe don't talk about the Holy Spirit much, we're going to get a good dose of who is the Holy Spirit? What is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? We'll lean into that a little bit in the weeks ahead. Now, fourthly, the doctrine of the church. See, Ephesians is, this un- is unique in this insistence that the church, Paul says, is the incarnate representative of Christ on earth. In other words, we, followers of Christ, are given the task, not only practically, but Paul is saying theologically, you are the embodiment of Christ on earth until he comes back to earth. That's a high call. God has entrusted us to give the world a picture of God's goodness. That you are Jesus' hands and his feet. You are the way that this world would get to know the goodness and the love and the holiness of God. And so what God wants is unified Christians to reveal God's goodness in their families, in their communities, and throughout the world. And what Paul is doing, he is reminding the Gentile Christians, I believe, in Ephesus of who they are before he tells them what to do. He spends the first half, chapters 1, 2, and 3, this is who God is, this is who you are, and now he spends the last half saying, because of that, this is how you should live. Now let's take a quick look at Ephesians 2, verse 11. Spend a couple minutes here. Let me read this again. Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, pause a second. What is Paul talking about? So what Paul is doing is reminding the Gentiles, the non-Jews, that even though they were once considered outside of the faith, they are now inside. Now, Paul himself was one time known as Saul, his Jewish name. He was a powerful leader within the Jewish religious system. He was highly respected, and he spent his whole life following Jewish ritual laws and, and demands that he found through the Hebrew scriptures. He spent his entire life doing that, that when he heard about these other Jews who are following Jesus, it infuriated Paul. He hated them. He hated the Christians. These Christians were saying that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah and that he had risen from the dead. Well, that's blasphemy. So Paul, known as Saul back then, was the lead persecutor of Christians who's throwing them in prison. Isn't that ironic? He's writing from prison, but he's, throw, he's the one who threw Christians in prison. And so Paul is radically transformed by a personal encounter with Jesus, okay? He's going to persecute more Christians, and Jesus shows up, ends up blinding Paul with this glory of light, and Paul becomes a follower of Jesus. The persecutor of Christians now becomes the greatest evangelist in the name of Jesus. And what we see, what Paul did after that, he would regularly go back to his Jewish brothers and sisters and say, I found the way, I found the life, I found the truth. And he'd go to the Jewish synagogues, but they generally always rejected him. So eventually, Paul gets this really clear call to go exclusively and primarily to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And it's because of this letter, because of the Apostle Paul, that non-Jews like us are Christians today. 
that, that Chinese can become Christians. It used to be an exclusively a Jewish thing. Did you know that? 2,000 years ago, all the Christians were Jews. But now even Germans can become Christians, and English people, and Australians, and Chinese, and Japanese, and Africans. Isn't that amazing? Us invited into the family of God. It shouldn't surprise us then that Paul is talking about Jewish rituals and Jewish ideas as he's talking to these Gentile believers, because that was Paul's background. And we get it real clear through Paul's word that Jesus came into the world to save everyone, all who would confess Jesus as Lord. Not just the Jews, but the whole world. That was always part of God's plan. And then Paul even emphasizes this grand plan of God in Ephesians 2.18, which says this, For through Christ we both he means Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. What Paul is doing, he's using this Trinitarian formula of Father, Son, and Spirit that we're going to see throughout uh, the letter to Ephesus. And it's emphasizing God's plan all along was this, to make a home for anybody who would call Jesus Lord, to make a home for anybody who would give their lives over to the one true Savior, anyone, that anyone who would call Jesus Lord becomes part of God's multi-ethnic, redeemed, and forever family, made possible by believing in Jesus, the Son, who gave his life on the cross, who took on your sin, and then gifted you his righteousness. That there's never enough that you could ever do, you can never be good enough, or philanthropic enough, or holy enough to earn your way into God's favor. So Jesus did it for us. And as we confess him as Lord, we're welcomed in. That you can join the perfect love of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, that it has existed for all eternity through Jesus. See, but becoming part of God's family is not through any effort on our own. That's what we look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 very quickly. We'll look at it later. But right now we see this, that Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. There's nothing you can do. You can't be a super Christian, and that's why God loves you. No. It doesn't matter if you try to choose this denomination or this other religion. All religions lead away from God, because Christianity isn't a religion. It's always been about God the Father, Son, and Spirit inviting us into a forever family. That's not a religion. It's only through Jesus. Nothing you could do to earn your way into God's favor, to work yourself to get that salvation. And so here's my very basic question for everyone listening. Sometime over the next several weeks, would you ask yourself, do I understand that the everlasting love that I long for, that every human longs for, can only be found in Jesus Christ? There's no amount of good I could do to earn my way to heaven. And it's actually because of Jesus, there's not enough, enough bad you could do to forever make you far from God, that God in Jesus Christ on the cross makes it possible for all to come near. So sometime for the next several weeks to ask yourself, do I know this Jesus? Do I know him as my Lord, my Savior? Sometime over the next several weeks, ask yourself, is that me? Because we want everyone to know through Jesus it's possible. 
You know, the late pastor R.C. Sproul, he shared this story from a local newspaper, apparently it was true, reported that a burglar who was stalking the neighborhood, watching for people leaving their homes unguarded and waiting for his chance to go steal their stuff. So one time, apparently, he was uh, watching a family loading their suitcases into a car, saw them take off, went up to the door, rang the doorbell to make sure no one was home, picked the lock, entered in. It was dark. And as he was in there, he checked one more time. He says, is anyone home? And he was surprised when he heard a voice say, I see you and Jesus sees you. Stopped in his tracks. Wait, wait, who was there? I see you and Jesus sees you. So he got his flashlight and shined it from where he heard the voice and it was a parrot. (laughs) I see you. And Jesus sees you. And he starts laughing, getting ready to rob the house, flips on the light, and he sees beneath the parrot cage a fierce-looking attack dog. (laughs) I see you, and Jesus sees you. Attack, Jesus, attack. (laughs) Now, the reality is Jesus does see you today. He's not here to attack you. (laughs) Jesus sees you, and he wants you to see him as he sees you. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as if you don't know this love that you cannot earn, this love you cannot lose, we ask that you would consider following him. Would you consider him as the one true Savior of your life? And what God wants us to do as we look at the book of Ephesians is to see better. I'm going to close with this thought. Ephesians 1, 18 to 19. In the middle of a long prayer, what we'll look at in the future, Paul makes a prayer for the Ephesians, and I believe for you and for me today through the Spirit. Here's the prayer. He prays that you would have the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of this power toward us who believe? Paul's prayer, and I think our prayer, should be that we would see better. So I'm asking, would you pray with us the next several weeks? Lord, help me to see. Help me to see the way that you see me. Help me to see the way that you see the world. Help me to see with the end in mind that there is an eternal inheritance that is awaiting us. And help me to live today with that end in mind. Help me to see, Spirit of God, help me to see Jesus as the way and the truth and the life, especially for those who have never said yes or aren't sure if they're followers of Jesus. Lord, help me to see that you are the sovereign God and the gracious God who has blessed us for our good. Help us to see you, Jesus, that you've made a way to reconcile us back to God and to one another. Help us to see that we don't have to live with bitterness and anger and resentment and blaming and pointing fingers anymore because Jesus has come and made a way to free us from our own bitterness. Lord, help us to see your spirit who lives within us as followers of Christ, who is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come, who empowers us to live out this goodness of God in our everyday lives. Lord, help us to see. Would you dare to pray that prayer 
Lord, help us to see reality that this world is not all that there is and to live for a better life that we can begin living now. Can I give you a couple applications as we wrap up? First of all, it's an invitation, kind of a challenge. Would you take time this week to read all of Ephesians in one sitting? It's going to take you a whopping 20 minutes, which I know is precious 20 minutes of your time and my time. So I'm going to invite you slash challenge you. Just read it all in one sitting. Just soak it in. We're going to be studying this for several weeks. Read Ephesians in one sitting. It'll take 20 minutes. Secondly, I want to leave you with this verse and this one last thought. In Ephesians 2.10, after Paul emphasizes that for grace you have been saved, then he says this, that we Christians are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I'm going to leave you with this thought in, in this really challenging time, that God has planned to do good things for you to do, things that will glorify him, things that will bless others, and things that will give you joy. And he's going to do that in the midst of challenging circumstances, which we're all going through right now. So I want you to think of this, that God did not put Paul in prison. I don't believe God put him there. But God did not allow Paul to waste his time in prison. It was redeemed time. So I'm not saying that Paul was blessed to be under house arrest in Rome for two years. Absolutely not. I'm not saying we're blessed to have all the different limitations and pains in our life. But what I am saying is that Paul didn't let the devil get the last word on his bad circumstances, and neither should you. And so may Ephesians the next several weeks, may we take every bad circumstances. You might be thinking, man, I need to go to financial peace because my credit card debt is... Lord... You take my debt. <laughs> Someone needs to take that debt. I need some help, Lord. The devil does not have to have the last word on your bad circumstances financially, your bad circumstances relationally, even spiritually. The devil does not have to have the last word. He didn't for Paul. As Paul gave over this limitation, this imprisonment over to the Lord, what can you give over to the Lord? God's got a good plan, Ephesians 2, 10 says. Even your bad circumstances can be redeemed. Nothing goes to waste when you trust Jesus. Do you trust him? You might say, well, Pastor, I trust him with all this, but oh, these other parts here, I want that stuff. Well, maybe that's exactly the stuff that you need to bring into the circle of love, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Lord, help me. Help me with these things that I'm struggling to trust you with. For the Christian... Anything you put into the hands of God has limitless opportunities to be redeemed for good. So what's your prison? Lord, take it, redeem it, use it for your glory, to bless others, and for my joy. Oh, he can do it. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray for us as we spend time in your word these next several weeks that you would not only inform us, but transform us. May we see your glory, your beauty, your sovereign love, your sovereign plan. May we see the fullness of the love of Jesus coming as a baby and growing up to lay down his life, taking on our sin on a cross. Lord, help us to see with new eyes your Holy Spirit that lives within us, 
and secures us in you. Lord, I pray for anyone who is unsure if they're a Christian, that maybe they've gone to church or they've sung songs before, but they don't have the assurance that they're in your forever family, that maybe there's even a suspicion that they've been trying to earn their way into heaven by being a good person or going to church. Lord, I pray for those of us, especially who are wondering if we are in your forever family. Lord, help them each to step over the line and by faith, by your grace, become one of your family members, even today. Lord, as we sing songs, may we ponder your greatness and ponder love you've poured out by your spirit. May we be that multi-ethnic, that diverse family of God that does gospel good in this world that points to you. Lord, you won't waste anything we hand to you. So Lord, we hand you our lives. We hand you our doubts. We hand you our struggles, our prisons, that you may redeem them and transform them and do some good out of it. Oh Lord, help us to see with your eyes. Help us to see you even now as we worship and praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.